0: Welcome to the Come, Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come, Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Feeling the Atonement, was given on October 9th of 2001 by Jeffrey D. Keith. Then a BYU professor of geology. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm delighted to be here today uh, and to share a few thoughts with you. I appreciate the music that was so inspiring in the prayer to invoke the Lord's Spirit here today. Three weeks ago, President Bateman centered his devotional talk around a scripture from Moroni chapter 7, verse 19, where he counseled us to search diligently in the light of Christ in order to lay hold upon every good thing? Well, the question that comes to mind is what constitutes searching diligently, especially here in a university setting? Numerous studies have shown that the more that you participate, actively participate as students, the more that you learn. For example, I love to take my students on field trips because they become so thoroughly involved that they focus and learn. I've taken two groups of students to the most active volcano on Earth to sample lava flows. that are about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's always fun, getting close to something that warm. They may get first-degree burns on their arms as they reach down to get a lava sample with the pick-end of their hammers. They get to smell the noxious sulfurous gases in the blue smoke coming out of the lava, and they see the lava explode as it enters the ocean and blocks of lava floating on water—that's something you don't see every day as, the, as they boil the ocean beneath them—and the soles of their boots may become a little soft as they be, and begin to smoke if they walk too long on an active flow. So my question is, is, will they ever forget the essential characteristics of an active lava flow that they learned by all five senses? Not too likely. Any type of learning that requires your full undivided attention and complete strenuous effort is going to be very effective. And uh, Does this mean that every good professor is trying to provide a near-death experience for his students? It may seem like that, and you've probably always suspected that with some of your professors and the workload they give you, right? But uh, it doesn't need to be that way. But does the Lord ever require such strenuous effort for our learning, profit, and blessing? Well, Isaiah records that Hezekiah wept sore. You remember that Jacob wrestled. Melchizedek is quoted as saying he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him. Enos wrestled and cried in mighty prayer. Well, these could be classified as active learners. There is nothing more active and more draining than wrestling or crying. But does all learning need to be so painful? That doesn't sound too fun to me. (coughs) Well, there's a movie, That my children have watched enough to memorize every line. They're sitting down here on the front row. They could quote it to you if you wanted. And probably a good portion of the student body here has done the same. The movie is The Princess Bride. (laughs) But according to The Princess Bride, what is the greatest thing in the world next to a good MLT? You all know the answer, right? And an MLT is mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich, for those who haven't watched the movie. But the greatest thing in the world, the answer is true love. Love is the most enjoyable and desirable form of active learning ever devised by God or man. Now You always knew that as students, right? You just wondered why we as professors didn't realize that, but uh, true, uh, love does make a difference. What I'd like to do today is emphasize how much more we can effectively learn by feeling something in our hearts than by just being able to write an equation for it. Love is the highest form of active learning. And it is far superior to having your boots catch on fire while walking on active lava, wrestling, or crying, and I've done all three of those. So, <clears throat> if we're to identify one single item that would be of greatest value to search and find, what would that be? Well, I suspect that many of you here today might say it would be to know more about the Savior. If we are enrolled in this pursuit, it is certainly not a one hour course. How extensive are the readings for this class? Well, the Apostle John tells us. He says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, does he really mean that? A world full of books. Can you imagine that? If such a biography—and that's what it would be—were written, It would be an incomparable biography. By contrast, you just heard my bio here—only a paragraph or two. That's it. I think that even my mother down here would be hard-pressed to write a more glowing or complete biography than that one. But with our Savior, a world full of books is inadequate to describe his accomplishments. So how can we possibly comprehend such a biography and such a being if the surface of the earth were covered with Harold B. Lee libraries? That sounds like a nightmare, right? (laughs) Each containing four and a half million volumes, like ours, the thousand trillion or quadrillion biographical volumes that could be housed would be insufficient. What would be written in all of those biographical volumes? Well, worlds without number, as he created, therefore there's going to be a lot of geology, and that's good, (laughs) but uh, that part may not be the most important part of the library. Perhaps the greatest work among his endless works is the infinite Atonement. After all, what is his work in his glory? Whom does he agonize over, and for whom has he suffered? Yes, as Elder Maxwell has often noted, he is in the details of our lives. He has experienced our every aching grief and, most importantly, paid a price we cannot fathom for our personal sins. So each of us has a unique place in his biography. Well, is this biography simply hypothetical? Well, maybe John was just making uh, a comparison. Perhaps not, because we are told that all things are written by the Father, as it says in 3 Nephi. Now, this infinite biography is not just a tragedy, he is equally well acquainted with our accomplishments, because, as John also records, he's the vine and we are the branches. All of the good, nourishing influence that comes into our lives comes through him. For without him we could do nothing, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are also his offspring. So you see, the most complete biography of each of our lives, both the growth and the cutting back, is really contained in his. And thanks be to God that this is the case. But the question remains, how can we possibly know all that is written in those quadrillion-plus volumes? So even if we search diligently, for they are they which testify of him, search the scriptures diligently, our knowledge of him may still be trivial when compared to his endless works and his endless words. But as we search diligently, the Lord can help to close the gap in the vital areas. And here's the key, I believe, that our minds can't comprehend some things, but our hearts can. There is so much that the Lord can reveal to our hearts, and it's this knowledge that is revealed directly to our hearts as well as our minds that is so vital. And it's by the power of His Spirit that He wants to write it in every one of our hearts. For example, you remember He revealed to Nephi with a vision of the Tree of Life that we can know and feel the love that He has for His children. If we just, if we just know it but don't feel it, we are really missing the boat because Hey, this is the fruit that is most desirable above all other fruits, and it's shed into the hearts of his children. Then, if it grows in our hearts, we become saints, or in other words, his sons and daughters. For example, here's an example there are some biographies of saints that we cannot hear recounted without feeling the love of the Savior for them as well as for us. Let me tell you just such a story, just a page, perhaps, from our Lord's biography, a page that spans a few generations of a family, but it affects every one of us here today, and that's why I've chosen it. So the story begins with Joseph Knight, who befriended Joseph Smith early in the history of the Restoration. He supplied Joseph Smith with many of the necessities of life while he was translating the Book of Mormon. In fact, he loaned his horse and wagon to Joseph Smith to recover the plates from the hill Cumorah and then supplied some of the paper on which the translation was made. Then he would often go visit Joseph to make sure that he had adequate food to continue the work of translation. So he was always giving and expecting nothing in return. Well, his son Newell Knight was equally as faithful. Newell was the recipient of the first miracle in the Church, as some of you have heard, and he labored as a missionary with Orson Pratt and Hiram Smith. And then in 1835, while he was working on the Kirtland Temple, Newell met and married Lydia Goldwaite. Lydia had been baptized two years earlier after hearing the prophet speak in Mount Pleasant, Canada. So finally, we get to the true love part of the story here. But after her baptism in Canada, Lydia had been extremely anxious to gather with the saints to Kirtland. And her parents were not members of the church at that time. And finally, they finally gave Lydia ample means, they said, to move to Kirtland and to be comfortable and respectable. But As soon as Lydia arrived in Kirtland, she was approached by Vincent Knight, who exclaimed, Sister, the prophet is in bondage and has been brought into distress by the persecutions of the wicked, and if you have any means to give, it will be a benefit to him. Oh, yes, sir, she replied, here is all I have. I only wish it were more, emptying her purse containing perhaps fifty dollars. Well, the amount was just, to free, just enough to free the prophet Joseph Smith, and Lydia apparently didn't worry that she was then left with nothing on her first day in Kirtland. Well, after several months, Lydia met Newell, and they were married, as I noted, and they moved with many of the saints to Missouri and then back to Nauvoo. And as the saints left Nauvoo, Newell was appointed to lead the first company of 50. The following year, as the saints were settled in, in log cabins on the prairie, Lydia records. The following account. On Monday morning, January 4, 1847, Newell, whose health had been failing, said, Lydia, I believe I shall go to rest this winter. The next night he arose with a severe pain in his right side. A fever had set in, and in spite of all that loving hands could do, he grew worse. I felt at last, Lydia said, that I could not endure his sufferings any longer, and that I ought not to hold him here. I knelt by his bedside, and with my hands upon his pale forehead asked my Heavenly Father to forgive my sins, and that the suffering of my companion might cease. And if he was appointed unto death, and could not remain with us, that he might be quickly eased from all pain and fall asleep in peace. Almost immediately, all pain left him, and in a short time he sweetly fell asleep in death without a struggle or groan. Well, Lydia was now left alone to care for seven children, with an eighth being born a few months later. Her grandson William records that Lydia's heart cried out many times in sorrow, for her burden seemed more than she could bear. Lydia could not then go west with the First Company of Saints, and then later that year President Brigham Young asked Lydia to give her three yoke of oxen and her two wagons to another family who could go west and who could take care of themselves when they got there. So she gave up her wagons and her oxen and stayed in winter quarters or nearby settlements for three years until the summer of 1850. She then rented a yoke of oxen for $60 to move her family west and spent the next two years in Salt Lake Valley working to repay that $60 debt. Well, Lydia was always always remained faithful, even after all of these troubles. But one of her sons, Jesse, not only grew up inactive in the church, but would argue against the church with his mother. William Knight, Jesse's son, records that on his grandmother's last visit to the Knight home before her death, her father Jesse said, Mom, how is it you are not preaching to me as you usually do? She answered, Jesse I prayed in the temple for my children many times, and on one occasion the Lord made it known to me that I was not to worry about you any more, that you would one day understand for yourself. Well, Jesse said, Mother, I know that you must be mistaken, for I am further from the Church now than I have ever been. She replied, I don't care what you say. I know one day you are going to see the gospel for yourself, and I never intend to argue again with you about religion. Just like a mother-and-son relationship, isn't it? Well, Jesse's mother then returned to St. George and her temple work. On the day that she completed the temple work for the last family name that she had, she went to bed and quietly passed away to go meet Newell and that God who gave her life. Well, a few years later Jesse's family was afflicted with sickness. His youngest child was about two years old. If any of you have had a two-year-old, you know how cute they are. Uh, they're incredible. I told all my kids they were never cuter than when they were two-year-olds. But what can you say? They grew. They they do grow up whether you want them to or not. And she was the first to become sick. William stated that she was the idol of the family. Everybody loved her. And when the doctors declared that there was nothing that more that could be done to save her, it was a terrible blow. Jesse's wife insisted that they call the elders at that time to administer to the child. However, Jesse stated, No, it would be hypocritical now that the doctors have given her up for me to resort to such a thing, and besides, I have no faith in the Church. Well, Jesse's wife prevailed, and the elders were called, and they did administer to their unconscious two-year-old daughter. And As soon as they finished, she immediately regained consciousness, sat up, noticed the flowers in the windows and Jesse's son William noted that from that very moment his father's life was changed and he remembered the words of his mother but this was not the last trial for Jesse soon after the miraculous this is what Jesse records in in his diary soon after the miraculous healing of Jenny our oldest girl Minnie was stricken From the time that she was taken ill, Minnie felt that she would not recover. When asked why she felt so, she answered that when Jenny, her two-year-old sister, was so bad she had asked God to take her if she would do as well as Jenny. So she counted the days, believing that she would live but thirty days from the time that she took sick. Every day she kept that count, Jesse records, and departed as she had said. Her going was peaceful, her breath leaving her as she said the prayer, "O oh God, bless our household. I remembered now that when she was a baby, she had diphtheria, and that then, almost 17 years ago, I had promised the Lord that if, she, that if he would spare her life, I would not forget him. I had not kept that promise. How keenly I felt the justice of her being taken from us. I suffered in my feelings, and I prayed for forgiveness and help. My prayer was answered, and I received a testimony," Jesse records. Well, in the late 1800s, the Tinick Mining District, near the southern end of Utah County where Jesse was living, was one of the more important mining districts in the western United States. And Jesse had no real training in how to find an ore deposit, but he enjoyed prospecting anyway. And He did prospect for seven years in this district before he found anything of real worth, but it's that discovery that was most remarkable and unexpected, at least by some. Well, This is the week in my Geology 460 course that we generally discuss how ore deposits such as those in the Tinik Mountains are formed and what the best indicators are for going out and finding one. These guides to finding an ore deposit are particularly well known for the Tinnick mining district because in the mid-1900s the United States Geological Survey spent 25 years in the district to develop these exploration guidelines. To teach this part of the course, what I do is the same sort of uh, near-death experience for my Hawaii students. I take the students on a field trip, hike them up and down mountains, and I take them to the area to show them the different types and combinations of hydrothermal alteration that indicate a concealed ore deposit. And then I take them to the east side of Godiva Mountain, like we did yesterday, where the rocks are really quite unremarkable, and I wish I could take all of you to this locality. Well, maybe I can. Technology being what it is, why not? So here we are in the southern part of Utah County on the east side of Godiva Mountain on our field trip. Jesse Knight was prospecting in this area. And one day he records that he sat down to rest under a pine tree, something like this one, when suddenly to his surprise, he heard a voice distinctly say to him, this country is here for the Mormons. That was all, but he assumed that was a good indication regarding his prospecting in this area. Eventually he invited whom he considered an expert miner, Jared Roundy, to come over and evaluate his claim. While Jared was over here, he showed him the rocks and asked him if he would like to participate and be a partner in the claim. Jared Roundy replied that I want no part of a darned old humbug like this. Jesse was not deterred, and he staked his claim that day on this spot called it the Humbug claim. Jesse eventually began driving a tunnel right over here to look for ore. These are the piles of waste rock from the Humbug tunnels and initially that's all there was, just waste rock. There was no ore to justify all his effort. In fact, there were no other productive mines on this side of the mountain. But he was confident that ore would be found so he hired the two very best miners from the adjacent Tinick District and talked his son William into coming to work for him as well. Those three worked in eight-hour shifts, and Jesse's job was to wheel the broken rock out of the tunnel in a wheelbarrow. Driving a tunnel using just a single jackhammer and a wheelbarrow is extremely slow and difficult work. The four of them continued this work day after day for almost two months, finding nothing except this extremely boring and unremarkable limestone. I agree with Jared Roundy. From a geologic point of view, there is no, no reason to anticipate finding anything of worth in the vicinity. Jesse Knight must have had a lot of faith to continue this work day after day. His son William records that, One day, while we were walking up the steep mountainside to do work in the Humbug Claim, father said, Will, I want to tell you something. We are going to have all the money we want as soon as we are in a position to handle it properly. We will someday save the credit of the church. Well, you know how children are with their parents. Will was in disbelief. He reminded his father that they had mortgaged the ranch and that the church at this difficult juncture in 1896 was in debt probably over a million dollars. Will records that he argued considerably with his father and told him the whole thing was ridiculous. Here's where Jesse now sounds just like his mother. He basically told William that he didn't want to argue with him because he had never had any impression come to him with greater force than this one had. He finished by stating that, quote, all I want you to do is remember what I am saying, unquote. Jesse regarded their future wealth as a sure thing, and that it would be given strictly for the purpose of doing good and building up the church. So William and Jesse didn't argue or discuss the matter any further. One day in August of 1896, at three in the morning, one of the miners came back down from the tunnel and told Jesse that he had just struck a vein of ore. William was excited, but Jesse was rather subdued about it. Two of them went back up here to the tunnel. Jesse went in with his little wheelbarrow and loaded up his first wheelbarrow full of ore and came out and dumped it on a platform somewhere right around here. Then Jesse stated, I've done the last day's work that I ever expect to do. From then on, he expected to be able to provide work and employment opportunities for others. Before we finish up our field trip here today, let me show you what the ore may have looked like. It may have looked something like this, and consisted of lead sulfide, or lead carbonate. The real value of the ore, though, was in gold and silver. Each ton of ore, like this, contained 175 ounces of silver and 3.8 ounces of gold. Very rich ore. So, in other words, for every small pile of rock about this size, there was the equivalent of 175 ounces of silver. Very impressive, considering this was supposed to be a humbug of a claim. Well, it seems that the Lord was intent on testing Jesse's willingness to use this initial wealth strictly for the purpose of doing good and building up the Church, like he had said. This is how it unfolded. By the time that October conference had arrived, Jesse had only made one shipment of ore. It was very rich ore and may have been worth about $11,000, similar to what his second shipment was that he sent late in October. But at this time, Jesse was living in Provo so his children could attend BYU. And At the end of the semiannual General Conference, his bishop and all other bishops and stake presidencies were invited to a special priesthood meeting. Near the end of that meeting, President Woodruff made a special plea to the bishops for them to visit with anyone in their wards who might be able to loan the Church money for a short period of time. He explained to them that the Church was in very difficult financial circumstances because the federal government had confiscated much Church property. He said that there were some very pressing demands on the Church and that the credit of the Church was at stake. Well, Jesse's bishop, who was at that meeting, thought nothing more about it until he was returning home from the Provo Tabernacle several weeks later. And when he was a short distance from his home, he said that he clearly heard an audible voice say, Jesse Knight will loan the church $10,000. That was all. But then he clearly remembered what President Woodruff had asked of the bishops. He immediately went to the house of Jesse Knight and began to relate what President Woodruff had told them about the church's financial difficulties. And Jesse Knight interrupted him, interrupted him at that point and said that he would loan the church $10,000 and that he would have that check ready by the following morning. Well, now, how much money did Jesse Knight really have on hand at that time? He probably just received one or two payments of around $11,000, probably paid his tithing, what would be left? Well, Jesse had no way of knowing whether his newly found ore body might end as suddenly as it had appeared, but regardless, he was willing to do what his mother had done before him when she emptied her purse to free the Prophet Joseph Smith or when she gave her three yoke of oxen and two wagons to another family at the request of Brigham Young. Well, Jesse followed through wrote the check with no hesitation. His bishop, Joseph Keeler, who took the check to Salt Lake the following morning noted that when President Woodruff received the sealed envelope from Jesse that it appeared to me that a great weight was lifted off his mind, he records. and Then President Woodruff (coughs) wrote Jesse Knight a letter stating that he had saved the credit of the Church, and his letter concluded with this benediction. I feel very thankful to you and feel with every sentiment of my heart to say, God bless you and prosper you. Well, Jesse was blessed and prospered from that day on. This was the first of a number of discoveries that he made on that east side of the mountain. The ore turned out to be nearly continuous underground for a distance of two miles. Jesse's mines then eventually netted $10 million. At the turn of the century, that was a fair amount of money. Here we are now, 105 years later after that October conference, when the Church was in such dire need, and Jesse Knight was an avenue for pointing out the needed blessing. The Church has prospered, the Saints have prospered, and I'm sure that most of you know that much of the campus is constructed on land that Jesse Knight and his family donated—540 acres of land here. and Four of the first eight buildings were built largely from their donations as well. So, the question is, why did all of this happen? Why did the Lord choose Jesse Knight and not somebody else to save the credit of the church and also to financially save this university? Do you think it was Jesse's own sincere repentance and change of heart and his remarkable unselfishness? Or was it his mother's frequent prayers in the temple? Maybe it was his oldest daughter's unselfish sacrifice and parting benediction when she said, Oh God, bless our household. Or was it his mother's unselfishness when she emptied her purse on the table in Kirtland to free the prophet or when she gave her three yoke of oxen and two wagons to another family to go west while she stayed in winter quarters three more years? Would the Lord look all the way back upon his grandfather's support of the prophet during translation of the Book of Mormon and then bless Jesse and return and bless us? Do blessings carry forward that far, or was it just all of them multiplied together? Well, Moses has the answer. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations." Well, this is As impressive as material blessings are that we sometimes focus on in this story, they are not the critical part of the story. Do you think that Lydia ever once prayed in the temple that her wayward son Jesse would become fabulously wealthy? Of course not. The real story is the mother's relentless prayers were answered, her son repented, and the angels rejoiced. Did Lydia need to wait patiently on the Lord? Well, absolutely. Jesse did not repent in her lifetime. But as with earlier saints, she received this promise that her prayers had entered the ears of the Lord, and he confirmed to her in the temple that they would be granted. But to Lydia and to us, the Lord promises this concerning our heartfelt prayers. Therefore, he giveth you this promise unto you, giveth this promise unto you, with an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled, and all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. So, how much of this story is written in the biography of the Lord? When Lydia prayed by the bedside of her husband to forgive all her sins and pleaded that her companions' suffering might cease, Did the Lord know the depth of her anguish at that moment? When she went on without her husband but with seven small children to winter quarters, could he really understand that? When her heart cried out many times in sorrow, for her burden seemed more than she could bear, did he fathom it? Well, as Isaiah testifies, surely he hath borne her griefs and carried her sorrows. Can you see that there would be these details and multitudes more about each of our lives written in his biography because he has borne them. Consequently, as we reflect upon the lives of the saints, we can begin to feel the awesome power of the atonement. That's the one point I want to make. Can you mentally fathom a biography that's more than a thousand trillion volumes in length? Not likely. But by feeling, by feeling, we come to understand the Atonement better than by just having a mastery of all the facts. Perhaps that is why the fruit of the Tree of Life is shed into our hearts, because in our hearts we can feel and understand His love. Well is there an upper or lower limit to what our hearts can comprehend and feel? Moses records that Enoch's heart swelled wide as eternity, and all eternity shook on a less grand scale, when we even detect these subtle swelling motions, we know that they are real and most precious and sweet above all that is sweet. So once we really come to know all that He has done for us and for all our brothers and sisters, we will have a powerful, motivating force to keep His commandments. Sinning is unthinkable during those moments of seeing things as they really are. Well, Finally, don't you wish you could read ahead a little in our Savior's biography and see how your individual chapter will proceed? As he stands at the door and knocks, will you someday open that door and be clasped in the arms of Jesus? Once while I was writing in my journal, my daughter Bonnie asked me if I had mentioned her that day in any of my writing. She wanted some reassurance of my love and interest in her. Was she important enough to be mentioned? Well, I would forgotten her that day, and my heart melted with her question. But the Lord reassures Bonnie and each of us that, yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand." So how often would we be mentioned in the Lord's biography? More often than we realize, for the Lord ever liveth to intercede in our behalf, and hopefully our chapter in his biography will have no end. So my challenge to you today is to search diligently or actively participate to know and feel the love of Christ. And if we are constantly seeking to know the breadth and depth of his atoning love and how very personal it really is, our seeking will not be in vain. And one day with Abraham, we will be able to say, Thy servant has sought thee earnestly, and now I have found thee. And I pray that it may be so with each one of us, in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches,